Good afternoon and welcome to the 80th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of Sweden in the COVID-19 pandemic with a historian of technology and science, Johan Gardebo. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and also on Periscope. And I'd like to welcome all new viewers and listeners to COVID Calls. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get podcasts. If you're wondering what COVID Calls is all about, be sure to check out our introductory episode on Podbean. It's also linked on the Facebook page. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and topics, and do please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 10th, 2020, there are 12,376,147 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 12,128,406 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 3,158,183 are in the United States. That's up from 3,088,913 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 133,777 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 132,934 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is William D. Greek. This was published April 10th in the Gloucester Times, Gloucester, Massachusetts. William D. Greek, age 55, born March 13th, 1965, passed away due to complications from COVID-19 on Tuesday evening, April 7th, 2020, at Beverly, Massachusetts Hospital. Will used to read obituaries thoroughly, whether he knew the person or not thought it was important to know a person's life story, so it seems most fitting that he is not to be to traditional obituary, but a story of the life of William Greek. His mother called him William. He preferred to be called Willie, yet some called him Will. Born in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, when William's father was discharged from the Air Force, his parents moved back to Gloucester when he was four weeks old. He was the son of Anne Ward Greek and the late Donald E. Greek. As an only child, Willie always had friends around. He was so blessed to still have so many of those same friends today. He created his own circle of brothers and sisters. He would play baseball, football, or whatever neighborhood game was going on until the streetlights went on. Willie graduated from Gloucester High School with the class of 1983. After high school, he was fortunate enough to travel to Hawaii. He ended up staying for a month because typical Willie style, he met someone at the airport that just handed over the keys to their condo and told him to feel free to stay for a while. Through athletic scholarships for football and baseball, Willie continued his education, obtaining a bachelor's degree from Wesleyan University in Connecticut, where he was a member of the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity. After college, Will went on an expedition with outward, outward 
outward bound in Wyoming. That was an experience of a lifetime that provided many great stories. Over the years, Will had different jobs, like working with youth programs, selling insurance, working on a fishing boat, painting, even though he was afraid of heights, bartending, and insurance claims. Most recently, Will had been employed as a private driver and caregiver to the elderly. His favorite jobs were the ones where he was working with young or elderly people. Some of his best attributes were his kindness and caring for those that didn't have or couldn't do for themselves. Will was an amazing, fun dad to Joshua 15 and Mallory 13. On a trip to Mexico, there was swimming with the dolphins, and most recently on a trip to the Bahamas, there was swimming with pigs. Not to mention the countless movies, trips to the mall, and hikes. Joshua and Mallory will miss their dad's silly jokes. They will miss his pranks, as well as his laughter while telling a story. Most of all, they will miss his loving and caring ways. William is survived by his mother and his former wife, Maria, of Gloucester and many uncles, aunts, cousins, and dear friends, as well as extended family in Massachusetts and North Carolina. In, new, in lieu of flowers, donations in William Greek's name may be made to the YMCA of the North Shore COVID-19 Response Fund. to turn to our conversation for today and introduce my guest. Really excited to have him on, Johan Gardebo. Johan holds a PhD in History of Science, Technology, and Environment from KTH, Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden. He is just about to start a postdoctoral fellowship at Link Oping University, researching Swedish carbon dependence and populism. Johan's research focus on transnational techno-scientific expertise, in particular with regards to Sweden's place in the world since mid-20th century onwards. And also say I've had the great pleasure of being a collaborator with Johan on a number of different projects related to the Anthropocene. Johan, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Like to remind everybody that you can get your questions in. You can put them just into the YouTube live chat, or you can email them to me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu. I'll check that during the broadcast, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. So, Johan, thanks for joining me. And I, I've been starting every one of these calls in the same way, just to try to get a sense where you're calling in from and what the COVID-19 situation is there today. So could you give us an update, please? Right. Well, um, the national situation at the moment is that we have 75,000 infected, of which 5,500 died uh, of COVID. Uh, of those, 90% have been um, confirmed in lab tests diagnosed with COVID. Um, there are, at the moment, several recommendations not to travel too much, now during the summer holidays. And if one does so, which you're, you have the right to, uh, you're supposed to uh, take adequate responsibility, uh, adhere to social distancing, and, and avoid specifically making new acquaintances, as many people usually do during summer holidays in Sweden. Um, I myself actually just came back from the woods um, an hour ago. So um, everyone's sound asleep here in Sweden, except me. Um, we've been out there for a couple of days. 
yeah, that's the situation at the moment for the country and myself, so to speak. Well, thanks for for that update. And I'm just going to read um, a couple of sentences from a story that was out in the New York Times this week, just to set the stage a little bit as we as we jump into this this discussion. According to the Times. Sweden put stock in the sensibility of its people as it largely avoided imposing government prohibitions. The government allowed restaurants, gyms, shops, playgrounds, and most schools to remain open during the pandemic. By contrast, Denmark and Norway opted for strict quarantines, banning large groups and locking down shops and restaurants. More than three months later, coronavirus is blamed for 5,420 deaths in Sweden. That was a as of a few days ago, according to the World Health Organization, that might not sound especially horrendous, according to the Times, compared with the number of Americans who have died. But Sweden is a country of only 10 million people. Per million people, Sweden has suffered 40% more deaths than the United States, 12 times more than Norway, seven times more than Finland, and six times more than Denmark. So I don't mean to put you on the spot or answer for the Swedish government, but I think we are all very curious to understand the decision-making process that went on there. So can you give us some context to understand why Sweden went this pathway? Well, what I I can say with regards to this article is that um, among all the commentaries that I've seen so far in following the news, uh, this is one of those that have made the largest impact for the government. So it actually... um, received a direct response from the government in the news, um, who, of course, denied the, um, the claim or accusation, as it were, that the Swedish government favored the economy uh, over uh, that of the welfare of the population, and especially here with regards to elderly people. Um, so it, it does matter for Sweden how the rest of the world views the strategy. Uh, that much, much is certain. Um, but as a Swede, I would also say that it's um, very much a fog of, of a war, if you can call it that, if, if, the, alleg- uh, if the allegory to a war is, is fitting here. Um, it's, it's not really clear um, with all the news going on, because we are sort of uh, becoming uh, a useful tool for many other countries to point to as a warning example. Um, or as a hopeful example, depending on, on what kind of course of action other countries are trying to take. So that would be my, my spontaneous response to this article. I also read it. Um, I think it's in general good that Swedes um, take into account how it's being viewed by other countries. Um, I'm not sure if I am qualified to speak on the claims made, but there are, it's being addressed and on on important aspects refuted from um, the highest uh, offices in Sweden, at least. Uh, so what Americans think apparently matters a lot to Sweden. Maybe not what Americans think, but maybe what the New York Times thinks. I don't, I don't know. It's fascinating to me that it, that it had that, that impact, but also sort of brings back this this question, and maybe you can reconstruct it for us a little bit as best you understand it. Um, why the decision was taken, and sort of how it was taken. You know, in the United States, it's it's also complicated. We have a Health and Human Services Agency, we have a yeah. uh, Emergency Management Agency, we have the, the the White House. There's supposed to be coordination and triangulation among those different ones to come up with a federal policy. And as I'm sure you know. 
Um, it's been confused from the very beginning and is still confused. And so has been left to states largely in the United States to go their own course. Walk us through a little bit the, the process in Sweden, how public health officials coordinate with the government more generally and, and why they came to the decision to do this sort of non-lockdown approach. Yeah. One of the strongest recurring um, arguments you will hear in the Swedish debate is that we have very strong authorities and uh, relatively weak ministries, so to speak. So a minister has only a handful of experts, if any, in the in the in the questions at hand. So they rely heavily on the authorities um, or what in the your current um, White House administration would call the deep state. Um, so that has a high renomy in Sweden at the moment and has had for for a long time but it's been particularly emphasized with regards to how this crisis has been handled so the public health agency in this case enjoys um, a lot of independence with regards to how it acts and the the main approach here is that you should not try to contain the uncontainable this policy uh, as far as i've been able to see has been established primarily by the former state epidemiologist of sweden uh, johan giseke uh, who's also um, been a leading uh, person in the in the um, in consulting the management so far in Sweden for the the, the present day state epidemiologist and his staff. Um, and I think especially for people like us who are interested in the history of disaster, um, this would probably be a subject of future re research, nam namely how the schools of thought have developed historically. So. If we take then uh, the state epidemiologist, the former state epidemiologist, Giseke, whose um, supervisor and mentor uh, was trained at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, then you can start to raise interesting questions. Uh, for instance, how have uh, collaborations uh, developed between uh, the UK epidemiologists and Swedish epidemiologists? Um, you could map co-authorship, bibliometric studies, and try to um, study a network, so to speak, uh, between these different uh, transnational expertises and how they develop. So the Swedish Public Health Agency basically did not act randomly. It did act out of a logic, which initially was also guiding the UK response. And it's a, it's a response that was informed by uh, ideas deeply founded in, in how colonial medicine developed. I think this is a topic for, for studies for STS for many years to come and history of technology, history of science. Um, yeah, so, so let's go a little bit uh, deeper into that then. Um, as you said, it was the approach also of the, of the UK and it has antecedents, um, you know, within sort of the way that maybe public health policy gets, it's made in Sweden. Can you can you give us a little bit more of a background, a context around that? I think I'll speak for myself. Uh, I don't really know much about how the Swedish health system works or how, um, again, uh, how the power you know might might flow among different sorts of sorts of agencies within Sweden or how they might have even continuity of memory. This has been one of the issues we've talked about a lot in the United States. Is um, you know, administrations come and go, but the CDC doesn't come and go. There should be some memory across time. Talk to us a little bit more about that in, in the Swedish context. Well, as I began by saying, the, the authorities enjoy a high level of trust. Uh, and of course, we have um, still, 
even after um, three decades of de deregulation and um, uh, shifting resources from the public to the private, you still have a fairly large uh, bill paid for by taxpayer money that goes into the health system. So if you would contract COVID in Sweden or you suspect you have it, you have every means of, of turning to the authorities. Uh, but with that said, they do have um, limited resources. Uh, of course, they need to, in the worst case, go into a triage, which was being discussed. But as far as I've seen, it wasn't actually acted upon um, on a wholesale scale. Um, but but again, these the specific crisis will need to, the effects of that will need to be assessed in hindsight. But if you would go back to, say, the Spanish flu, uh, the 1917-18th, influenza, then um, you could see similar arguments with regards to how the press should behave or how authorities should behave. There's been this fear of fear. So within this, um, within this trust for the authorities, it's also predicated on that we leave it to experts to make the decisions for us with regards to how the crisis is supposed to be dealt with. And um, similarly, the press should act responsibly not to uh, increase um, um, suspicions or, or um, uh, allow widespread panic among the populace. And I think what's interesting to, to point out here is uh, the term what uh, what uh, the term of what constitutes health on a on a population wide basis, um, because this this is where you can get into different uh, priorities. So uh, is it healthy for a population to to have a lockdown for a contracted period or for kids not to go to school um, or, or to not be able to go to a job. Um, there are other kinds of, of dangers that you expose the population to in that case. Uh, and those are also taken into account with regards to the Swedish approach, which uh, have also been discussed in this New York Times article that you cited earlier. Um, and, and these are also matters that um, have been discussed with regards to previous crisis that um, you need to keep a level of functioning society and trust in the authorities um, in order to uh, deal with the crisis over the long term. Of course, the, um, the coronavirus is unprecedented with regards to other crises before. If we look at the Spanish um, flu, for instance, that was during, still during the First World War. So most reporting in Sweden would have been about war, not flu. Um, in this case, the concern is rather that um, we will get a more uncertain geopolitical situation, for instance, with regards to the European Union or a curtailment of globalization, as it's been seen. But these things were ongoing before the pandemic as well uh, and, and probably have antecedents rather with regards to the economic austerity politics across Europe that were experienced in the early 2010s. And then, of course, the migrant crisis that also put a strain on uh, border controls, which we are still experiencing to this day. Um, we could also, of course, discuss the, the government as such, but I'll, I'll guess we can come back to that because uh, you well, raised some questions. Uh, yeah, let's yeah. come back to that. For, yeah, well, let, let, let me stay with this for a second. So just so I understand that the, um, when other countries were putting um, severe restrictions, uh, closing restaurants, closing bars, um, closing gyms, you know, shopping, uh, major institutions, museums and things like that, the approach in Sweden was to leave those open and leave it to individuals to decide for themselves if they wanted to, for example, to use a mask or to, to pursue social distance 
but that, it, but with the exception that in, um, so let's talk about that a little bit more. And then what were the caveats there? Were there special, um, a special approach for children or the special approach for people with vulnerabilities, chronic health conditions, people in nursing homes and, and things like that. I mean, as I've understood, it was kind of a bimodal approach. It was like extra care for those who we knew would need it, but for everybody else, let's just go forward as normal. Is that about right? Or maybe you can fill it in a little bit for me. Well, to start on a personal note, um, for my son who goes to kindergarten, we were, we were informed that unless uh, we had um, vocations which were critical to the, um, the maintenance of society, then we might um, we might not be able to have our kids in kindergarten. So for for someone in the U.S. or or, or in other countries who, who had more severe lockdowns, having a kid anywhere but home might seem strange. But for us, uh, we could still bring our kids to kindergarten, provided, of course, they were completely symptom-free. If they had symptoms, they had to be stay at home for 48 hours. Uh, similar, similar rules applied, of, of course, to us as parents. Uh, but if they had to make a priority, then children of um, parents who had critical jobs for the maintenance of society uh, would be prioritized. And as much as you and I enjoy our jobs, we would not be on that list, Scott. Uh, so, so that's that's uh, one one way of, of course, seeing the crisis um, up close. But also when, when you would be out, you, you could still go out. Um, people would not go to jobs if, if not necessary. I mean, the amount of, of Zoom meetings I've been having this, this spring is, um, it probably would, would feel for, for what would otherwise count for my entire like academic work, I think. Um, because everything has, of course, gone digital. Uh, but it's also because it could go digital here in Stockholm. Um, and in any other places, it would probably be, be harder. Um, but but the main the main difference, I think, would would be that you have still the right to move about. Um, yes, you could have restaurants who were who who had constraints placed upon them, and they were given warnings if they did not adhere to social distancing in terms of how they placed tables and such. And yes, universities were also. Um, quick to take the decision to close down education and move uh, personnel home. But if, if you had to go to the job, you could still do so. So you, by and large, people had the right to move about as they saw fit. But the responsible thing to do was still um, to stay home as much as possible. And this, I think, is the most interesting aspect about how Sweden has dealt with the crisis so far, that it shifted the weight of responsibility from government, not in the sense of authorities. It's always been clear that the, the responsibility for dealing with this has been the public health agency of Sweden. But what I mean by the responsibility of the government is the cabinet of ministers directly. That responsibility shifted from them to the general population, where most of their, their, their information to the public was about how people should behave in a moralistic sense. So it's, if, if you will, it's, it's an enormous uh, moral philosophical experiment with the Swedish population where we are asked or, or expected to behave uh, sensibly, so to speak. So the Swedish thing to do, if you will, to be Swedish right now is to act responsibly. 
So that's with a minimal government oversight and maximal sort of independence and reliance upon individuals to behave in this in these ways that you've that you've described to not to judge if they're sick and not to make others sick. Right. So let me um, let me come to a question here. We've got and I'd like to remind people you can get your questions in using the YouTube live chat or Facebook live uh, or also on uh, Periscope on Twitter. This question from Patrick Roberts. Hi, Patrick. Um, good to see a question from you here. And Johan, I don't know if you can see that up on your screen. Um, not sure if you can speak to this. Patrick's an expert in emergency management, and, and he's asking, did Sweden have a formal pandemic response plan? And if so, was it was it followed? And even um, Beyond that, I'm, I think that's a great question, and sort of even beyond that, it sort of ties back into this notion of what kinds of planning might have been taking place in government that could have been useful in this moment, or maybe things are just going to plan. I mean, I don't know. That's that's the other way to think about it. What's your what's your answer to Patrick's question? The public health agency drew up um, plans as soon as they they realized that the virus would spread from from China from Wuhan. Um, and it should be mentioned here that it's not the first time that a virus uh, comes from China. Uh, so, so initially, the, the public health agency uh, waited to see how it would actually spread out. But once it was clear that it was spreading, there were, were measurements taken. Uh, but with that said, the information that were given to the public, at least, which is the only thing I can speak of here, uh, is is that um, initially things. Um, seemed to pan out fine, that general uh, measurements would, would not be necessary because it would be a, a relatively contained virus. And later on, uh, that argument was flipped so that it was said that in now the, the virus is so thoroughly spread out, it is a pandemic, that it, it's not meaningful to try to contain it uh, because it's uncontainable. So again, then we come back to this policy uh, that also has been developed among some leading scholars at the London School of Hygiene and the Tropical Medicine that um, you should not try to contain the uncontainable. Um, so yes, there has been a response plan. So I'm not sure if if one could say that if it was followed, many of these things have been ad hoc, but they've also been clear about how response has been ad hoc. Um, they've also been very um, um, uh, open to, to uh, uh, new signals on how things are developing. But by and large, you have not seen the kind of uh, U-turn as you had in UK from going from um, a laissez-faire approach towards um, a lockdown approach. We, we haven't right. experienced any, anything close to that. Um, and by laissez-faire, so, I should also point out that um, it's not referred to uh, that in Sweden. We describe our policy as a responsible uh, response from the general population. So the government has stuck with this despite some some criticism. How have neighboring countries responded? You said you can move around freely in Sweden. Do you have the same right to move across the border at this time? Well, the borders between the Nordic countries are open, except for Sweden. So Norway recently opened some 
regions. Uh, it opens its borders to some regions of Sweden, uh, which are those not severely infected by COVID. Um, Denmark has recently also opened its border to, to southern Sweden, uh, which used to be part of the Danish Empire uh, back in the day. And when last I checked, Finland still maintained uh, traveling restrictions against uh, Sweden. Um, as uh, as with regards to Europe, um, the borders, um, as far as I know, are uh, are fairly open. Uh, there are plans for a relief fund, which is made up of both subsidies and loans to countries to stimulate both a regrowth of economy and support um, um, their health systems. So there are also some some institutions or responses from the European Union. So it's not the feeling that you're you're left on your own, so to speak. Um, but being a Swede right now is, of course, a bit of a, a laughing stock of the Nordic countries. Um, we, 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 you, you kind of have to uh, take it uh, with a half guess that we can't really go out of Sweden. And there's, of course, a reason why me and so many other Swedes are now going to the woods because where else would we go in our holidays? Uh, this is where, this is where we have to make the most of it, so to speak. I see. So um, has that reality that you just described or the economic reality that was described in the Times piece that that if the rationale for keeping things open and relying on individuals to, to make their decisions, if the rationale was economic, and as you pointed out, the government rejects that, but the Times sort of report, reported that, the reality is that the economic impact is demonstrable in Sweden. Um, has this been provocative then of conflict, uh, either within normal roots of politics, or do you see conflict and, and pushback in other ways? Is this a time of social tension in Sweden? There's a lot to unpack there. With regards to the economy, there are stimulus packages. Um, many people in the industry, and definitely initially in the pandemic, um, when it spread all over Europe, that is, um, um, have had to stay home from their jobs. So the sense was not that we kept our industries open and running, um, despite knowing the dangers of that. So as a Swede, it would be hard to, to see, um, see that this was a strategy on part of the government to save the economy, so to speak. Uh, the argument would rather be that you should only enforce uh, edicts or policies that you can back up and and the assessment at the time was that Swedes would not adhere to a lockdown uh, that they would ad adhere to appealing to our sensibilities so to speak but re with regards to, to tensions if we come back then to the notion that taking social distance and um, not spreading the virus is a responsible and Swedish thing to do one of the tensions that came to the fore early on was uh, that elderly people, um, especially some um, um, very vocal elderly people in the press, uh, stated that they did not like having to um, limit their their freedoms or their 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 sphere of movement. Um, and the elderly people early on were stigmatized for um, exposing the the health the the welfare system and the health healthcare for undue uh, tension, so to speak, because if they moved about, they could contract the virus and 
they would most likely need um, immediate uh, or intensive care. But later on, this has shifted so that by now, summertime, when uh, we have um, high school students who just graduated uh, and, and the families going on holidays, it's rather that the, the blame game, so to speak, shifts towards the younger people. So uh, I think the, the average age in Sweden for contracting the virus is about 35. Uh, I think it's about the same in many parts of the US, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and the people who are most um, mobile are between 16 to 29. So now the emphasis in how this is debated, at least in the press, the daily press, is with regards to how younger people are supposed to behave with regards to their, the environment. So now if we come back to the economy, one of the risks then is that many of the younger people also work with elderly people. So that even though you yourself are not, um, or at least not perceive yourself as being in the risk of contracting the virus, then if you do, then you can bring it into the elderly homes, which is also in, to, to a large degree what happened. I think about half of the deaths are among the people who lived in elderly homes. And what's important to note here is that the people working um, in in elder care are generally uh, paid um, uh, uh, by hour. They have uh, more precarious work conditions, which means they cannot say no to a, uh, to a work opportunity, uh, even if they would feel sick. Uh, second thing is that um, many people who work in precarious jobs um, are also, uh, or to a higher degree or proportion, uh, from migrant backgrounds. So one of the ten tensions that were discussed was that migrants were among the super spreaders of the virus. Um, and one aspect could, of course, be that, that migrants, to a larger degree than other Swedes or majority Swedes, travel more, they have relatives in other countries. So in that respect, yes, you could argue that they would spread the virus. But also there's a class component here that they also work in precarious work uh, conditions um, and in that capacity also would spread the virus. So there are tensions in Swedish society emerging as part of the, the pandemic. But to my understanding, these existed pre prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic rather emphasizes those um, conditions rather than creates them. Those, thank you for describing those um, fractures in such detail. I think that's really illuminating. And particularly, you know, that we've had similar debates in the United States around the so-called essential workers, which in the U.S., as you may know, can mean everything from uh, physicians and nurses, but it can also mean um, people who are working in support and in, in cleaning, um, in logistics, working in packing houses. And just as you described, that means a, a, a disproportionate share of Americans who've been exposed to COVID-19 and have died of COVID-19 um, are people who have uh, contingent, like they have to show up for work or they lose their job. Um, and many of them come from uh, immigrant communities. Now, just to understand that a little bit better in Sweden. Could you, can you tell us a little bit more about the migrant crisis as a background of this? You, you mentioned that there's maybe some connection here in the politics and in, again, who may be working in these um, retirement homes and, and nursing homes. How did the migrant crisis play out in Sweden? I mean, it's still playing out, I understand, but tell us a little bit about it. I would say it's actually two different things. 
the migrant crisis are primarily people who have stayed in Sweden and and applied uh, for asylum. Um, either they uh, remain in place uh, and, and try to make do with the time while their while their requests are being processed. Um, the the main the brunt of people going back are those who would have relatives in other countries and have the liberty also to move. So these would generally be citizens in Sweden, although they also have ethnic heritage from other countries. Um, and that has less to do with the migrant crisis as such and more to do with Sweden being one of the um, main main countries in the Nordic to take in more migrants in general. So this is also a difference in the Nordic approaches that Sweden has a different demography. We have a uh, much more uh, um, differentiated or diverse uh, cultural or con um, cultures in in Sweden than you would have in in Sweden uh, in Norway, Finland, or or Denmark for that matter. And they also have more restrictive uh, migrant politics, which Sweden you could say have adopted in more recent years, but fairly late compared to these other countries. This is also a difference in in how uh, how the policy policies are are playing out. But there has been claims that because of uh, a more diverse um, population, it's also harder to enact policies which require uh, cultural obedience to consensus, basically, that you share the same culture. But those are th these are part of, of a large spectrum of, of opinions. And that comes back to what I said earlier about the fog of war. It's unclear to, to mm -hmm. citizens as such as myself what is spreading or causing this. But yes, you have an overrepresentation of cases among migrants um, in terms of COVID and deaths from COVID. people that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking today about the situation of the pandemic in Sweden with my guest Johan Gardebo. Johan, I'd like to um, turn the conversation now a little bit to more sort of broad historical. We've already touched a few notes here about uh, you talked about the Swedish experience of the Spanish so-called Spanish flu in 1918. Um, you've just finished a tremendous project, which I cannot wait to see as a, as a book on environing technology. And you're an expert also in the Swedish experience of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986. Maybe we could turn a little bit um, to some broader discussion of, of um, how trust in science in Sweden compares maybe to other countries, maybe you can talk a little bit about your your own thoughts about about that, about how Sweden maybe doesn't always go the same direction as other European countries when it comes to science and technology. Let's start with that Chernobyl case. Can you tell us a little bit about Sweden's role in the Chernobyl disaster and what you take away from that? Yeah, sure. So um, the reporting of Chernobyl was first conducted by Swedes. So it was um, detected in Sweden and also uh, a crisis group formed very quickly that both took national responsibilities in terms of um, coordinating responses, both from municipal level up to national level. Um, and you also had an international effort 
both with regards to pressuring the Soviet Union um, about uh, where the, the source of radiation uh, stemmed from, but also with regards to uh, initiating discussions with international uh, nuclear experts. And instrumental to this was uh, an ad hoc approach by different nuclear experts, but also uh, experts uh, working on economy, on agriculture, uh, on health in general, uh, and of course the nuclear power plants then specifically. And you had clear ministerial influence in, in setting up and lending this ad hoc group authority. Because even, even though each of these authorities working on these topics uh, could work um, with regards to their specific expertise, um, there was no, so to speak, um, there was no um, political glue that would hold them together. So even though they might know each other on a uh, level uh, of experts, so to speak, and transnationally as well, um, what the Minister of Energy and Environment, uh, Environment at the time did was to, uh, something quite uncommon actually in Sweden, was to exert ministerial rule. Basically say that this group now has the full authority of the Swedish government. Uh, we entrust them to do these things and everything they do will reflect back on us. Um, and this uh, enjoyed this group enjoyed the passive or at least formal support of the government even though it operated individually now in some respects you could say that well chernobyl is a very um brief instance of danger so it cannot be compared to this this um, um crisis which is a pandemic that can go on for years uh, but what i find interesting is that you had ministers who were prepared to stake basically their careers uh, um, in in having the crisis dealt with sufficiently. And they also had very clear dialogue with the different municipalities. I think this is something that reflects back on how we should approach the COVID pandemic uh, in light of, of how our governments can act. I think what is lacking at the moment is some similar sense of responsibility. So one aspect of the crisis that has become clear is that the healthcare system in Sweden, as in many other countries, um, is more or less dealing with this crisis based on a sense of duty among the people working there. Um, if you can call this a war, it is because the healthcare has several warriors, people who are prepared to work hours um, upon hours, days and nights, um, far more than could be expected in any other branch of society. But that only reflects further back on the lack of similar enthusiasm from politicians. In Sweden, for instance, we have a very consensus-oriented uh, political climate compared to many other countries. Uh, and if you would look at how the, the other parties, the opposition, the formal opposition, have acted when the pandemic broke out, it was more or less with understanding with regards to the government. And even when, when the critique and debate opened up later on uh, a month ago, um, then there were still um, fairly muted responses to how the government dealt with this. And I think this has less to do with an understanding of the, the crisis that we're in with regards to this pandemic, and more to do with the fact that it is dangerous to exert power. Uh, of course, uh, we, we could view the pandemic as, as a, 
a clash between different systems uh, of governance where you have a uh, the Chinese uh, centralized uh, lockdown approach, or you could take the Swedish approach as as a laissez-faire, where where the the population as a whole is is uh, held hostage to be responsible for how this plays out, instead of the government. Uh, but I think one thing that that stands out is how our government has given the public health agency more or less the full brunt of responsibility. And in the end, also much of the blame of how this is going to play out. And the danger with doing this is that you're going to, if it turns badly, we don't know yet, because we don't know um, if if the country reaches herd immunity, for instance. But if this, if this turns out badly, then the trust in the state as such will be eroded, rather than the trust in this particular government. Governments can be re-elected. But states have a harder time reacquiring the trust of, of um, the general populace. And I think with regards to Chernobyl, this turned out well because Sweden managed to, to enact its policies and the ministers were also acquitted in the hearings later on. But it was always clear that it was the government that was responsible for this, even though the, the, formal, um, the formal response was given to specific authorities. Um, they they still stayed with them all the way, but but as of now, it is our state epidemiologists who are sort of dealing with this on an almost personalized uh, level. And I think that's that's one of the is, uh, issues that should be brought out in historical comparisons here. That the Swedish approach doesn't have to be this particular one. Chernobyl showed a different way of of dealing with the corona uh, with, with the crisis, and the corona crisis could have been approached in a similar uh, manner. If we then skip forward a few years, um, Sweden also had uh, the financial crisis in the early 90s. And as th the reason why I mentioned the financial crisis is because after the financial crisis, uh, Sweden enacted, um, you could call it a new labor approach. It was still a labor government, um, similar to what you had in the UK, but with policies to, um, fiscal policies to uh, restrict spending a sort of uh, light version of austerity politics. Um, and that has been more or less in effect until this day. Um, so you try to constrain and make as effective as possible uh, the public uh, sphere uh, and have other functions shift to the, the private sphere. The problem with those politics is that no one has had overall responsibility for how the government has fu uh, functioned. And now we're seeing, seeing um, examples of this uh, isolated sense of responsibility. And I think our current government is also a case of that, that you feel an isolated responsibility. Uh, we're taking overall responsibility um, is something that would uh, be detrimental to your possibilities of being reelected. And of course, this might prove successful in terms of, of um, being reelected, but in terms of, of just running the country, I think um, the state as, as a whole would have fared better if they had taken a, a stronger role. Um, that, I think, is one of the cases that history can be a precursor to. And it's such a um, thank you for drawing that, that bridge across from Chernobyl to COVID-19. And I mean, it really resonates with what we're experiencing in the United States and what colleagues have described experiencing uh, in Brazil as well. 
but such a different context. You know, this sense, as you said, governments can come and go. You can you can reelect a different president, um, a prime minister. And that's one thing, but it's it's quite something else when the population loses its confidence in the health ministry. If we lose confidence in the United States in our Centers for Disease Control, to me, I mean that's a, that's really devastating because building that kind of trust takes a lot of time. And your Chernobyl example is really fascinating. I didn't realize that um, the public had really. Uh, as, as clearly as you drew that picture that the, the, the country really sort of rallied and saw that um, as a success for the way that uh, Swedes had approached sort of governance of, of science in that moment. But you really see it as this sort of perilous moment right now for trust in the scientific bureaucracy in Sweden then. Well, the question I ask myself is, why would Sweden not act the same way as it did during Chernobyl? And I think to understand that you need to look at the decades, the several decades since then of cutting back on the public sphere and making it more dangerous for, for politicians to stick out their neck and do that kind of job. Uh, because um, it is dangerous to, to want to have that kind of power, power in the public sphere. Uh, it's easier to leave it to experts in private sphere um, who, can, who can show that their approach is more efficient. So one example here is, for instance, um, having storages with with um, uh, safety equipment. Now that approach might not be efficient because you need to replace that and it costs a lot of money. So fiscally speaking, you might not want to have uh, large storage rooms um, uh, with equipment that needs to be replaced every twelve months or so. But in terms of security and trust in society, then it need you need to take that kind of responsibility if you want to maintain the trust that citizens have in the state or at a more direct level, municipal level, because it's at municipal levels that much of, or regional level, um, that healthcare is being dealt with in Sweden, where preparedness against crisis is being dealt with. But what, what you had for a long time here in March was a kind of blame game between the national level, which in the US would, uh, I guess, uh, equate to the federal, um, and then you had municipals and regional. And instead of saying, we want to fix this, we're trying to take responsibility and doing the most with very little resources at hand. Then it, you're trying to make someone else being responsible. Uh, and I think this logic um, only came into strong effect in the 90s when you had less of a trust in what politics could enact. And of course, this can belong, belong to the larger story of, of the post-Cold War era. Um, and um, the wonderful world of uh, uh, when when history ended, um, and I think that story has yeah. now come to an end. Uh, so if if we've wanted to say anything uh, positive about this, um, is that for many, for good and bad, history is really really back. And you could of course bring this back in in an environmental sense to the Anthropocene if you want to go theoretical on this discussion. Um, that history is really back. Um, and one bizarre experience me and many Swedes had, that, or I say many Swedes because that was the main, the most people I was discussing this with, was a feeling of hope uh, when you were when 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 we were isolated uh, in in our homes and uh, uh, really could only um, talk to each other by phone or or um, 
email or have these Zoom meetings, it was a feeling of of hope that that whatever we created now was was ours. That all the other um, uh, unstoppable forces of globalization had sort of ceased for a moment. I live next to an airfield, so for me it was very clear also that there were no more planes in the sky. Um, so whatever we made do with during the days was what we had. Um, and I think, of course, this situation is is always there that you have the possibility of doing things differently. But it takes a crisis for you, for one to really wake up, even for historians, I would say, um, who study sure. past past experiences. Um, it still takes a lived experience to to really understand that things can be dramatically different, and that in itself, I think, is a positive lesson. Um, not a not a disastrous one because the normality of many of the things that are are bizarre in our society is also something that should be questioned well, let me ask you a little bit about that i want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls i'm talking to johan gardebo about the swedish experience of the pandemic you can still get a question in on youtube live or put it up on on twitter if you want to um there should be a term for this i'm not sure what it maybe there is and i don't know but this uh sometimes out of body experience that i think historians so let's talk historians here for a second when you spend all of your time trying to make sense of things in the past that somehow broke a continuity that, that we notch as historical. Um, and you're doing that. And then you say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm alive in the middle of one of those right now. And it, it's, it's a little, dis, it's disturbing. Of course, you know, I have the luxury of doing that and not having to be on the front lines like the essential workers. I want to put that out there and be clear about that, but it is a, it is a whiplash effect and then it also of course will alter the way you think about your own work and you were you were describing i mean you're putting it chernobyl in the context of COVID 19 i hope you're writing about that i mean i think it's tremendous and should be written about right now and things that we know were important in the past but we will still now see them through this new COVID 19 uh, lens and of course of course we have to so let me ask you i mean you're an incredibly um, self-aware historian. Are you journaling at this time? What is your sort of personal practice of keeping track of the day-to-day in the pandemic? Um, I have talked less with my colleagues and more with, I shouldn't say friends because many colleagues are friends as well, but I guess family um, and uh, trying to get a sense of of their experiences of this. Um, and I think that's, that's the main difference that my, my sphere of contact has limited to, um, to less of the intellectual and more of the, I guess, uh, phenomenological, you could say, like experiencing the crisis. Again, you, you could bring up the, the radiation from Chernobyl as a good example that it was um it was a crisis that made people really question how their world was constituted because it was uh, a danger or a death that was not perceptible uh, that that you needed to experience other ways of sensing which of course also pushes the the boundaries of who is the expert who can explain to you what that sensing is 
and in this case the experts then are the epidemiologists um it's it's a recurring topic in sweden that you should not try to be a hobby epidemiologist and for for one period there was also a campaign that uh, uh, you should apologize to epidemiologists so that uh, at certain times you you could sit down in a in a public square somewhere in sweden and there would be an epidemiologist there and then you could for two minutes just apologize so 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 there's this but, um that's like trying to tell people not to talk about the weather it doesn't work everyone is going to have an opinion of their as you said their own phenomena in their own life even if the epidemiologist is the expert yeah. i love that idea of apologizing to the epidemiologist we need that but, here in america for sure so so for the for these reasons i have i have so far not made any stake in in debating or analyzing this this actually is the first call that we have um probably because now i also have been on holidays and i've been able to get a break from everything because when you're in the middle of it in stockholm which is still very much like the epicenter of where these things, uh, where the where the pandemic exists, then you get kind of carried away by everything. Uh, so I would say this is the first time that I actually have time to have, have put some of my thoughts uh, on paper or print or. Um, but mostly it's it's been making 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 my 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 social life more more limited. So globalization has definitely like let go some of its sway on not not so much on the people i know but the explanatory value of of things in the world uh of, of why things are happening um this can of course be very dangerous i i'm one of the things i am concerned about is the kind of outlooks that politics uh, will have once this pandemic is over uh once mm-hmm. we return into we'll have an election in two years time yours is coming up in in autumn um so the, these things i am concerned about um but but as for now i've been primarily just trying to live through it and talk through it so i've talked a lot more with people near to me uh than i usually would and discuss politics more so it's been impossible to to keep these things divided uh if not for anything the fact that you're working in one, one room and the rest of your family is living in the next one so going in between Absolutely. makes it impossible to be like, oh, now I'm a historian, now I'm a dad, now I'm a partner, no, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, you always have your antennae up, you know, and gathering. I mean, we all do, even if in this pandemic, the archive is literally being built in real time. And do you have a sense of how the historical community in Sweden is working right now? I mean, it's very active in the United States, even though we're not able to get to the archive. Um, people I know in that in that space, I would give one shout out to Valerie Marlowe, for example, who runs the research library at the Disaster Research Center in Delaware. I mean, she is, I mean, and many others are very actively trying to gather data right now, really sort of perishable historical data. Is that happening there as well? Yeah. So one of the biggest issue um, efforts is to uh, try to document all the uh, conversation, both on stage and off stage, with regards to the press conferences, which are held in Sweden uh, every day at two o'clock. I think they have some summer breaks now because um, some of the ordinary staff are on on break. But these these have taken on an almost ritualistic um, importance uh, and the, and the symbolic gesture of of 
every day getting the, the, the death toll revised, um, updates on the strategy, um, um, the kind of questions that are, that are being, being asked. And I think these are the, this is discourse in the making. This is where you're going to see uh, the different positions and how they, they evolved over time. Uh, and also how new certainties um, became such or fell out of favor. Um, because at no point has the public health agency really faltered or swayed in, in providing an uh, uh, affirmative or authoritative answer. They have revised it over time, but they, they kept the trust in their authority more or less intact. So my, my concern rather is, um, is rather uh, the kind of stories um, among the people who, who have been infected uh, and affected by the crisis uh, to conduct interviews with them. Uh, and there, there are efforts to do so, but also the, the post-traumatic stress for these people is quite severe in many cases. Uh, several of, of our colleagues at KDH uh, have also um, suffered from, from, um, uh, from, from uh, COVID. So this, this is in no way abstract. So, so it's, it's, um, it's also uh, painful to, to bring up these, these memories for many people. So I think this is, this is one of the challenges that, that historians and, and um, social scientists should take on. But it's, it's also hard to organize it now that the pandemic is still ongoing. Uh, so I think one of the the, the official um, the official sources are being are being gathered, but the other one with regards to interviews, I think that is still very much in in uh, um, in the emergence um, and hasn't yet taken form. You think this is an issue you're going to be working on? Well, we'll see. I mean, uh, I've already signed on, and I'm looking forward to to the work I will be doing in lean shopping. So, uh, but, but for instance, uh, in that work, we're supposed to do a lot of interviews. Uh, and um, it's very hard to, to get um, permissions to do so while the pandemic is ongoing. Mm. Uh, so of course this affects research. It, it affects everyone's research. And what you mentioned about the archivists sure. in the US making a, an effort for people to get access, I think is commendable. And many of the archivists in Sweden are really also showing uh, a similar understanding. I, I've been able to go to four archives this spring and all of them have been informal uh, by, by, by the archivists who themselves uh, agree to take, take, take you in and, and show you the archive. Um, but formally speaking, they are still closed or restricted access at least. So that means they had to decide on their own that it was okay to bring you in and let you work in the in the archive and be in that in that space. That's a lot of trust. I mean, they're really making an effort, and you can really see that they're working out of yeah. a sense of duty. And again, what the pandemic really shows, at least, is that what kind of vocations have a sense of duty here? Uh, and it's it sounds almost primordial and anti-modern to bring up, but. Um, Making duty great again, I think, is one of the things that we're going to be discussing uh, in for many years to come. Well, um, I want to remind people that you've been listening to COVID calls, and it's been great to talk to Johan Gadebo. So you're taking up the postdoctoral position here in just in September, and you'll be 
teaching at all? You'll be teaching remotely or your experience will be on campus or do you know yet? Yeah, so to my knowledge, most universities in Sweden have taken decision to conduct most of their education um, remotely. Uh, the ones who are prioritized are those who need lab environments and the kind of on-site equipment. But other than that, most have already migrated to, to Zoom. Uh, so I'll be teaching remotely. I will be visiting my colleagues, but it's going to be very limited, um, on very limited occasions. Um, the main issue I think that we need to combat now is, is how to conduct interviews with, with people as part of the project. Right. Um, but I mean, uh, the work goes on. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to autumn, really, um, and see how this plays out. COVID Calls is on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And next week is the Natural Hazards meeting. If you're not uh, familiar with Natural Hazards Center at the University of Colorado Boulder, we've spoken with several folks from Natural Hazards Center over the last few weeks. Lori Peak is the director. Lori was a guest just on last week. And it's the biggest meeting every year in the United States for social scientists doing disaster research. And so we have several uh, COVID calls next week devoted to talking to people who are affiliated with that meeting. So please join me on Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern time as we continue these conversations. Johan, it's great to see you. Great to talk with you. Um, stay healthy. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Likewise. Take care, everyone. Bye.